Welcome to Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast. Learn firsthand from business owners who built successful ABA businesses. Utilize proven techniques and strategies to help your practice thrive. This is Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast with Jonathan Mueller. Pauli Gavoni is an expert in human behavior, coaching, and organizational leadership. He's passionate about supporting children and adults in ABA practices, schools, businesses, and more. He's a former Golden Gloves heavyweight champion and a highly successful professional MMA coach. And he's a number one best-selling author of Behavioral Karma, Five Scientific Laws of Life and Leadership. Pauli, welcome to the pod. Thank you, brother. It was cool. You put on, you, you switched real quick to that radio voice, man. It got real cool for a second. <laughs> <laughs> that's an honor coming from you dude always always honing the craft yeah that's I, it brother <laughs> i uh i i've uh i'm psyched we get to chat this has been a long time in the coming and you know Polly, you were bullied as a child and tell me about your hardest bullying incident you had to overcome and how did that shape you yeah well first of all let me give some context and clarification i was definitely bullied there's no doubt about it but there are people out there that take a friggin' man, they, they are bullied. Like if you look at what I went through and what they go through, I mean, it's amazing. Some of these kids get up and come to school, man, they have some real, I don't know, man, it, it just moxie to get up and come in. Um, my bullying, a uh, couple things was that um, I had a good friend. Um, I won't mention his name, but um, he lived across the street and he was a very skinny kid. Um, and, uh, people would pick on him. My, my earliest memories, a couple of early memories. Like I remember my mom, uh, her father died when she was very young. She had me when she was 15 years old. Um, she ended up moving down, uh, to, uh, Fort Lauderdale. Um, my dad was doing, you know, drugs and drinking and everything. And she got out of Dodge cause her mom was down there. And, um, uh, my earliest memory was her dropping me off at like, I was thinking it was four years old or something at the uh, local daycare and uh, a couple of kids pushing me down, throwing sand, kicking sand in my face. Right. And then uh, my next memory is uh, of uh, this kid we called John the bully and John the bully was messing with my good friend that lived across the street, the skinny kid. And like, you know, when I was a kid, I'm like, this is wrong. You know what I mean? It's not what superheroes do, you know, and all the, those kind of things. And, and so um, I tried to stick up for him and John the bully beat me up. And I remember my, my dad, actually, my biological father had moved down at this point. And uh, <laughs> he told me that you know, he was doing drugs back then. Um, but, he, but you remember, uh, how old are you, man? Are you were 45. You're, okay. You're a little, you're a few years younger than me, six or seven years younger. But um, they used to have these Tonka trucks and they were like these big metal mm. ones. Yes. So he gave me the talcum trunk. I had those. And he goes, go hit John and the bully. <laughs> so I went over and I whacked John with it. John, the bully in the head with it. And then uh, as the story goes, I ran. John, the bully just looked at me like I was crazy. And I ran off and uh, ran in the door. And uh, my dad, you know, locked the door. And we're both peeking out the window. <laughs> John, the bully was going to you're going to get me. But another time he went over and like picked John, the John, the bully beat me up again. And grabbed him by the hair, picked him up by the hair and dropped him over the fence. And John, the bully just looked at him and laughed. He was a scary kid, man. Um, but so I ended up in that neighborhood. It was, you know, my mom, when she first moved there, she was on welfare. I ended up going to Head Start and uh, 
you know, my dad came from a blue collar family and my mom actually came from a pretty well-to-do family, but she was on her own now. She was just a young teenager and, you know, the family had kind of disowned her for being with uh, my father. And um, so neighborhood was kind of rough. I ended up, uh, when I was seven years old, uh, I got a, a knife held to my throat. Um, you know, they could want money and I didn't have any money. And that's when my mom and now my, my stepdad uh, said, you know what, enough's enough. And so we moved to another neighborhood. And the first day on that block, the local bully beat me up. And I have no idea, man. I moved in. I was just like a sweet kid. I, if you see me like blonde hair, I looked like a girl, you know. And uh, he beat me up, and for years uh, I would lift in fear of him. Now there was another guy that had I crossed within a year while I was living there. I went to cross the street with the same kid that was a good friend of mine. He had come to stay over my house, and I pushed the crosswalk button right, just push the button, and I'm walking across the street. And next thing I know, this car comes to a screeching halt, pulls over the side, and says, uh, "Kid jumps out." I don't know. Again, I was eight at the time. I think he was probably. 13 or 14 is where his big brother and he goes why'd you push the button and make us stop i'm like you know this is what you do when you cross the street you know and he punched me in the mouth um and so like you connect these dots right and uh it's but it's not like i was going to school and people were like picking on me every day um it was those incidents is and there, there was a couple more that just kind of shaped how i felt about things you know and so when that same kid when i moved into the neighborhood that beat me up on the first day um we ended up getting he said something to me and like threatened me and i think by this time i was like 15 14 years old and i said i had enough like at this point i was like honest to god man and i i felt like i would almost rather die than be allow somebody to make me feel this way about myself anymore and we fought and uh i ended up beating him up you know when i say beating him up like i put him on the ground and you know i came out the victor and you know made him give so to speak you know what i mean at those days and uh I, when i moved um you know i because of that uh i had a thing you know for like i'm not gonna allow anybody to push me around and so it, it definitely led to me being a fighter you know i started boxing a few a few years later and uh what i found is that unfortunately it seems like um i can be the nicest guy i can be an intellectual I, I don't look like it and probably speak like it most of the time um you know be kind to people and all these compassionate um but the people i grew up around with didn't really respect that um what they respected was when i got in there and i fought you know the guy that's six foot ten you know uh, which is a true story uh, and that allowed me to just be myself. You know, I can walk in anywhere and I can cry if I want to, or be sensitive and speak this way and, um, and still feel confident enough to do it. You know, like I'm not going to be judged or anything. And I'm not saying that's the right thing. I'm not saying people need to go become a fighter and do any of this stuff because the world shouldn't be that way. But unfortunately in my history dictated that this is what, what was going to be right for me. Hmm. It sounds like, Paulie, there was a direct line of causation from sort of your early childhood circumstances and the bullying to becoming uh, a, a boxer and then ultimately an MMA coach. And I'm just like, it, it, this is part of like what I'm really fascinated about by your background is like you made conscious decisions to sort of reshape your environment or reshape yourself and your, your own behaviors and environment. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, what are the lessons that you learn from literally like being in the ring? 
um, that generalize to being a leader of organizations. Yeah, man. I mean, there are so many lessons I look at. If you look at a lot of my writing, um, I there's a lot I learned from fighting. And really, you know, we're all fighting something somewhere. It doesn't have to be physical and literal, you know, but you're you're trying to push through something. And, uh, you know, whether it's overcoming your own, you know, issues that have stemmed from your past or, you know, there could be acute issues that are presenting themselves. Um, I, I use that fire, you know, that like I'm not going to allow myself to be pushed around to even when if I feel like it, I feel anxious and I feel afraid, you know what I mean? Like anybody that says they don't feel afraid of things like they're psychopaths, you know, mm. like when I fought, I felt afraid when I stand up for myself. I feel afraid sometimes like I have a job, you know what I mean? I don't want to lose or if I put something out there and it's becoming judged somehow, I feel afraid, anxious about it. Um, but I've learned that, you know, if I feel I've grown to understand what my values are and really try to behave in line with them and who behaves in line with alignment values all the time, you know, it's like a, be a tough thing, you know, and I got to get myself back in line some sometimes, you know, um, but the fighting part of me just says, you know what, if I feel this way and I believe this is to be true and here's why, because one of my core values is being kind to people and helping people and helping them to find meaning in their life. And I, I didn't go into social work because I wanted to make money. That was my original degrees. You know, mm. I did it because I enjoyed helping people because somebody helped me along the way. And mm. it makes me feel good to do that. And so I use that my fighter, you know, my, I have a, I have a, poem i wrote a while back i'll send it to you it's called i am a fighter um mm. but it was for anybody i said we're all fighting something but i used that kind of uh you know fighter mentality said like i'm not backing down i'm gonna uh, fighting doesn't always mean being aggressive and usually doesn't mean mm. that that's like the opposite way to be you know my 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 natural fighting style was counter punching you know slipping and rolling and you know what i mean avoiding getting hit and striking off of that um, but, uh, you know, I really use that mentality to sometimes you got to fight things with being overly kind, you know what I mean? Because somebody doesn't know who you are, they know, and they have their own history and they've been abused in some way, you know? So sometimes I got to fight to keep my mouth shut because I feel like mm -hmm. saying something, I'm like, you know what, even though it's making aligns my values, I got to think about what the impact of my behavior is because in, in the end, it doesn't matter what my intention is. Like mm. what, what's going to be the result of me saying something in this way, you know? Mm. One thing I've always wondered is, you know, once you have those tremendous skill sets as a, as a boxer or as you know, a mixed martial artist, is your, have do you find that your first instinct when you come into a conflict is potentially to fight or not necessarily, do you feel like you become more disciplined in, or, or I should say exercise more discretion in knowing this is a situation to fight in versus not. Like, how does that mentality happen? Um, I mean, I don't have, uh, by the way, can you see me? I clicked something and something popped up here. Can you still see me? Yeah, I can see you. Great. Okay, good. Sorry about that, man. Um, look, I mean, everybody has fight or flight stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, my initial response to stuff normally is I feel anxious, right? Mm -hmm. About something. But if I see, here's what brings a dog out of me. Um, and man, I mean this, and you're going to hear this in my voice. <clears throat> I don't care about the letters around your name. I don't care about how much money you have, the cars you drive. I don't care about what you've published. None of that stuff matters to me, right? I'll respect it if it's made a difference for people. Uh, but what I really do care about, uh, again, not don't, it doesn't matter if you're the most powerful person in the room, in other words. What I really do care about is how you 
treat the person with the least amount of power. That's yeah. what I'm going to judge you by. Right. Um, and I mean it. And um, I was just, I, man, I could have probably, I was just doing a training with 70 leaders and, uh, and just in the middle of it, I'll say that I'm looking around. I'm like, if you guys are leading this way, you are not a leader. You know, it's not, this is not leadership. This is opposite. This is positional authority and you're mm. abusing your position if you're leading through fear and driving people that way. So that kind of stuff makes me angry, you know, to see that, you know, and I don't like it when people try to, and it's very rare. People have been very kind to me. I'm like very lucky given as much stuff as I have out on social media. I mean, I have hundreds of articles, hundreds of videos, hundreds of podcasts. You know what I mean? I'm always putting stuff out there and I've gotten very little flack for things. In fact, somebody like recently last year and I, was so thankful to him i had him on my podcast he sent me a private message and said you know what i love your stuff you made a mistake here this is not in line with the science and you know so i have to say something to you i'm like i really appreciate that man the way you did that makes me feel better rather than trying to flog me publicly and when i see people a lot of times correcting people online publicly i think well what it, you know if they're reinforcing people a lot and they do that sometimes and okay you know and they're trying to help people but like what is really the function of your behavior? Are you trying to put mm -hmm. elevate yourself to make yourself look like, you know, whatever you want to be appear at, or are you really trying to help somebody? And I think if you're really trying to help somebody, a core thing is like give people corrective feedback privately as much as you can. You know, it's just a simple rule. And I'm not saying everybody's like that, but most people do want that kind of stuff privately. So I don't know if I fully answered your question. I, I think I did and went off track a little bit, but. <laughs> You did. Well, I like that you highlighted that like there's too much like one way megaphone that happens, especially on social media these days. And if you if your true desire or outcome is to shape someone else's behavior and you see something that that you feel like can be corrected, send them a private message. These are the basics of having like gone to fucking preschool, right? Like that's Ooh, these are the skills you learn in preschool. I was so grateful for that, man. And I see it all the time and I see it in our field. And honestly, when I see it, I don't like it. I don't like to see like professors, like not treating students with kindness, you know, and sure, you know, I'm a professor and they could say some things that are like silly, you know, but like, look, this is, we were all students and probably did stuff like this. I'm not in judgment. I just want them to come away and, you know, learn something, you know, not feel, make them feel like I'm on a, on a, on a pedestal. Again, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's not about your position, man. It's what you're doing with it. And so that those are the people that do good by people that I really respect and I want in my circle. Bingo. Well, Paul, you once told me that um, complexity is the enemy of execution and scale. And I thought there was so much Yoda wisdom in this. Like, how have you seen that play out in your career? Yeah, man. I, well, first of all, it's probably the core of what I do. I operate in simplicity, right? Simplicity is what you need. And I mean, our, our field is supposed to be, you know, rooted in parsimony. You know, we want to keep things as simple as possible so you know the old kiss keep it mm -hmm. simple and i say keep it simple scientist yeah. um if you look at a lot of things i use it's like these are the practical the tools i have are the practical application of the science of human behavior my vision is like a world that uses simple science to make the world a better place for other people and themselves you know and that would be a wonderful thing and we have all these amazing tools that and approaches that people don't understand because our field just hasn't done it, like a really bad job disseminating. 
and not making things as simple as possible. I forget. I'm not. Don't quote me on this, but Einstein said, "If you don't, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough." Mm. And I, I'm certainly not saying I understand the deepest levels of science because there are people that will run circles around me, man. Some of these guys and gals out there, man, they're just just brilliant in their ability to research. You know, but there's there's different. There's people who are brilliant there. There's people who are brilliant in their ability to apply, and there's people who are br uh, brilliant in their ability to disseminate. You know, and sometimes there's a little crossover with those. But it seems like there's a lot of times there's a separation between the researchers and like the other ends, like polar opposites. You know, researchers and disseminators. Disseminators are like storytellers. You know, and mm. and so, um, anyways, I think when I'm I'm speaking to people, I keep it simple. Because I want them to understand. I am certainly not trying to make them think, look how intelligent this guy is. You know, I'm not using big words. I operate in simplicity, including my own language. And, um, you know, and that's because this beats what my vision is, my why, and what my mission is, disseminating stuff and getting people to, again, through my different outlets. And I, I have lots of different outlets that I use. And so, uh, yeah, that's why I believe keep it simple, man. Don't do things. Do things like, you know, here, here's a good example for anybody that works in education or in within your own organization. If you're using like token economies, right? Now, token economies can be very complex. Uh, and some of, some of the schools that I was going in and they're trying to embed these token economies, I'm like, how about we just start with being friggin' nice to the kids? Well, let's just start there. What's the token economy going to do if you don't do fundamentally smile at them? say good morning you know what i mean mm -hmm. and the same thing with the adults you know like the school leader doing it with the adults right let's let's focus on building relationships by being a human being and being helpful and helping people to feel safe and let's do that from the very top and have it trickle down if you do that man people will start to do better they'll they'll perform better they'll feel good they can innovate rather than operating in a space where they feel afraid and they get this tunnel vision it's just it's bad and a lot of people in our field get this thing that i call behavioral myopia where they forget about applying the science at different levels right when they're outside working with the learner or the client mm -hmm. and the science should never be taken off right they should always have that lens on and they're hurting their organizations and ultimately hurting the clients that they're serving because mm -hmm. they're not bringing out the best in people but anyways the back to the token economy thing keep it simple man keep it simple let's start with the easiest thing that's going to have the largest and you know was positive effect that's socially valid yeah keep it simple scientists i really like that paulie it reminds me like it, it to communicate in a way that the listener is going to understand and i actually have to use this program grammarly to like to make sure that when i'm writing an email you know they say in written communication write at a fifth grade level yep like, so so you're meeting uh listeners consistently where they are and i have to use grammarly to come back and like get rid of those erudite and other bullshit words i'm throwing yeah, in man. like sound it can whatever. be hard to do though actually yeah. writing at the level is hard man saying the most with the least is like a difficult thing to do um mm. and uh, it you know does in the in in our field it does we operate in uh, with precision you know mm. when we're doing things clinically but we're not everything we do isn't always clinical you know sometimes we just yeah. gotta engage people and create a yeah. want for them helping them to see that oh this is the science stuff is kind of cool man i, I want to learn more about it yeah it's you know when i it's funny I, i'm gonna sound really stupid here when i you know you'll carve out an hour a week to like communicate with my teams um and you know send an email it's reinforcing our values or you know sharing a, a, a story of a kid making progress or whatever 
but I'll have that hour carved out. I'll bang out that email in 15, 20 minutes. I'm spending the next 40 minutes trying to reduce word count and simplify because I'm like the enemy of myself. I feel like I do the same thing, man. Uh, you know what? But that shows that you care, man. And, and it also shows that you have a deep understanding about how impactful your words are. And people need to be very careful about the words. They are powerful. And, you know, in the tone of the email, which is very hard to come across, like I put emojis in some people just, well, I don't have to put emojis. I'm like, well, I don't know, man. You know, like, you know, a lot of communication are not the words that are coming out of your mouth mm -hmm. or what's on mm -hmm. paper, you know? So how helping people understand the tone of the emails is really important, especially if it's like tough topics, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so I, I think all that stuff is very important. What can organizations do? Polly to guard against complexity well i i think that you know would like for example like you want to have you you want all organizations need metrics and mm -hmm. you know they but sometimes like the the act of collecting the metrics right is very difficult could be very challenging uh and it could be like not the cost of it just in terms of time can be you know very very uh uh have a negative impact on performance and the bottom line. So I think something very simple to do is get people to understand what, what in, in the five laws we call self-monitoring and reporting out. Mm -hmm. um, so like you, Jonathan, you can't go look at 30 people, but 30 people can take a look at their own performance, right? And mm -hmm. performance is the behavior and result they're trying to produce, right? The tasks and everything associated with that. And they can report that out to you. And now you can go and just do a little bit of, you know, inner observer agreement, right? Mm -hmm. Verbally mm -hmm. to see if what they're reporting out and you're seeing the same thing and give them feedback on it and use the opportunity to, you know, increase, you know, positive feedback to, you know, what they're working on. So I think something like that can be very simple. It could be a simple checklist, right? It doesn't have to be like when I go in and look at uh, some of Bill Abernathy's, William Ab Abernathy's work, the sin of, Sin of wages. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that. Hmm. So we have scorecards that are like, man, it makes sense when you dig into it, but it's pretty complex, man. I'm like, hey, if we got a good scorecard, you know, something simple. Again, it could be a checklist or a couple of critical behaviors to focus on and critical, not a whole bunch of things, just a couple of critical behaviors. Um, you can do that. Aubrey Daniels has some really good st stuff. Uh, he calls the performance matrix, which is like a, mm -hmm. a way to score a card. I love that thing. And when you first look at it, it looks like a little complicated. It's really not, man. It's just, mm -hmm. it just unpacking like performance. You know, do you want to measure result or behavior and then figuring out how you can put metrics on it. So it becomes a scale, like a behavior mm -hmm. anchor rated scale. So um, I think that's an, an important thing. I think, you know, communication to what you just said, you got to be, you know, if you're putting out uh, long emails, Nobody's going to read that stuff, man. You got to keep your emails simple and to the point, you know, like what's the result you need? What's a couple of critical behaviors you need to operate on? I think that needs to be done. I think like if you're putting out surveys, for example, and I think everybody should be putting out surveys, Jonathan, um, I think they should be brief. You know, I think, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and by the way, on that topic, you didn't ask that question. I think social validity is extremely important, things like climate surveys. And I think that, you know, organizations do it as, a compliance thing at the end of the year it's stupid um in my opinion it's like an autopsy what are you going to do with that data mm -hmm. um you we need 
we need ongoing data to find out how people are feeling about the way things are going around here, so to speak, right? The culture mm -hmm. and uh, whatever, you know, goals are working on. And, you know, like I would say quarterly at a minimum. I mean, ideally it'd be <laughs> weekly. Um, although you can have feedback loops that are too tight and, you know, yep. you panic, right? Uh, but most feedback loops are just too delayed. And, you know, we need to, uh, you know, sometimes the messaging is off and it's better to find that out early on. Oh, they think this. Hey, guys, got this data from you and, you know, here's what we're going to do with it. And use that data to act on that data. If you see they have a point, mm. ad adjust to that point. If they don't have a point, explain why it is. But I tell you, man, when people respond to surveys like that, it, they really will love the leader. You know, they feel that they're being heard and mm -hmm. uh you know that it, it takes can take thick skin it also takes a process where people feel they can safely put the data in because i've seen places where you know people were afraid to put data like th that in for judges so like an independent organization would be good or a very trusted source within the company that says you know what nobody's going to have access to this individual data and we're going to take the aggregate data and I'm going to present it in summary form and we're going to highlight some key themes within it. You know what I mean? We're going to operate mm -hmm. on that. So everybody always feels safe with putting stuff through. So, you know, that's, again, I went off track with that stuff a little bit, but you know, that's again, keeping it simple, check that, see how people are feeling, you know, have people self-monitor and report out, you know, set goals that are, uh, you know, and, and identify accomplishments, um, meaning like salient metrics, Mm -hmm. that lets you know you're moving in the right direction you know results won't often move until these accomplishments occur and mm -hmm. if you're only leading by that result it'll feel like you know things aren't moving and if you're the performer you'll feel like you're not doing what you should be doing but when you identify those accomplishments that need to occur at the end of the day or at the end of the week you know when you're a performer and you know that you've done those nothing feels better than knowing you did your work at the end of the day and a lot of people don't know they've done their job at the end of the day. So that's a very powerful thing for leaders and organizations to understand. It's a powerful feedback loop. And, you know, it's I almost look at the, like the idea of surveys is like, you know, we are science. We are shaping the behavior of our kiddos toward a, a target, right, toward a mm -hmm. goal. And, and in many ways, surveys shape our own behavior as leaders, right, from our teams. That's right the goal we want to be so like yeah once a quarter or twice a year once a year dude by the time you analyze all that data it's like so much time's gone by oh. there's no way you're going to be able to act on it and so like coming to that weekly or twice we like twice a month these just pulse surveys short to the point five, three to five questions man i feel yeah. safe i feel cared for my supervisor's checking in on me you know what i mean it could be a self-monitor if you did something also with individuals it could Let's say you wanted to make sure, you know, supervisors were doing the right thing. You make sure they have the tools, mm -hmm. you set goals for them that are realistic about how many times they can check in with their people, you know. And so you ask the supervisee, you know, hey, has your supervisor checked in on you twice a week, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then you ask the supervisor, are you checking in with your supervisee? So it's a, it's a nice little loop that's built in there, you know? And totally. it can be very simple. That's simple stuff. That's where I live. Totally. And you know what I like about that is like, it doesn't take a survey to then have a self-monitoring checklist for a supervisor that says, did I touch base with each of my team members this week? Right. But that's right. And then you look at the data and you can reinforce groups of people who are under this and you can like, look at who is the, the manager of that group. You know, you yeah. can reinforce them. Hey man, we got, you know, you can first reinforce 
people putting in those surveys, right? Or self-monitoring report out. Let's just make that a habit around here, right? Institutionalize that process. And then we start looking at like, you know, get diving deeper into what's the data looking like. So you mm-hmm. got to shape that whole process. Absolutely. Well, you've written this number one best-selling book on the five scientific laws of life and leadership, but I'm going to list those five. That's one, pinpointing, two, goal setting, three, self-monitoring and reporting out, four, feedback, five, pay for performance. I love the simplicity of those. And I mean, it's all, it's all backed up by research right? like, you know, from our science. But, you know, let me ask a specific question because one thing I found is that it, over the course of my career, it's really hard to set up pay for performance systems unless the mechanics and logistics of it and more trying to get away from this um this notion that i think uh, team members might have of oh my value now is in whether or not i received a bonus and so i'm going to equate how the organization feels about me with that bonus and so i don't know any thoughts on how how can organizations get pay for performance right yeah so let me i i want to be clear on this like i am not an expert in pay performance you know um, I, that the pay performance that we talk about there was for the lay person to understand, mm-hmm. like, essentially we're talking about positive reinforcement, right? You <laughs> yeah. behave this way and something of value comes to you. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. how we explain it in the book itself. Now, I, I mean, I can, I can speak a little bit to pay performance and I would really recommend, uh, Aubrey's, uh, mm-hmm. performance matrix. Uh, and it, it, again, it looks complicated, but it's not, it's really simple. A lot of issues come with like pinpointing, right? And being precise about results and being precise about behaviors required to achieve those results. And when you can be precise about those things, it makes criteria objective. And once you've got some level of objectivity and you have a simple metric for that stuff, um, you know, now you can maybe adjust, you know, to what people make in terms of their bonuses. Now, I believe that, you know, give people as much money as your margin will allow, you know, your, mm. your profit will allow, uh, you know, because in the end, I think you're going to end up m- making more money. And I, I think people are going to be happier. They're going to stay there, you know? And so share, we, you know, part of what we talk about in that chapter is making a win-win. And, you know, when you have people, uh, you shouldn't be paying people just based on the hours. It's what's happening during those hours. It's those accomplishments mm-hmm. that are the most important. And how many people clock in and clock out and didn't do much work, you know? Or how many people are doing a ton of work and doing more than they should be, but they're having to stick in for eight hours. Let them go home early. You know, what do you care? Let them go home earlier. They'll be happier. They right. will be happier and they're producing better than they should. But again, you have to figure out, the trick is finding out how much, what that is, right? What is what is a good norm for that performance? What's a good criteria for that? So coming up with that standard is like, you know, that's part of the challenge, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, if it was sales, like, well, all right, how much sales should you have a month? And we want to break that down the weekly, uh, maybe accomplishments. How many people did you reach out to, you know, to uh, our call? And maybe it's a daily thing or, you know, maybe a, a daily thing might, how much marketing mm-hmm. stuff did you pump out? So you're going to have these metrics that are part of the scorecard that have or serve as leading indicators moving towards that end result. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. ABA practice owners, are billing and insurance issues getting you down? Well, let me tell you, Element RCM is your answer. Element provides world-class revenue cycle management services, contracting, credentialing, authorizations, billing, and more. 
elements of your partner so you can focus on what you love to do, providing the highest quality services to your families and clients. Elements a preferred partner of the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence and its founders have nearly 20 years of experience owning and operating successful ABA organizations. They understand you. They know that every dollar counts, that integrity is everything. Element works with any practice management system. And Element's not a vendor, they're your partner. So find out more and take a free revenue cycle assessment at elementrcm.ai. Well, Paul, I've watched a video of yours about how to turn mistakes into improvement. I love this video and I'll, you know, I'll drop it in the show notes because I want listeners to see, um, you know, how you really just super effectively use video and YouTube to communicate, coming back to this idea of simplicity, communicate these important concepts. What's, um, you know, think about this idea of how to turn mistakes into improvement. What's one of your biggest mistakes in your life, in your career that you turned into improvement and then like pinpoint for me, what was it about that experience that resulted in such a big improvement? Huh. Steve, this is why you send these questions to me ahead of time, man. I'm <laughs> like, all right, but you're going to get off the cuff. You know, I'm not sure what I'm going to say here because it's going to come to me. So, um, you know, I'll be honest, man. Most of most of my successes came out of failures or uh, aversive situations, right? Forced me out of my comfort zone. Um, and otherwise I would have stayed right there. And mm-hmm. so I think that, um, you know, if you're in, if you're in a position where you're unhappy, um, you know, you have a choice, you can stay and accept it, but if you're going to, if you're going to stay, you need to accept it. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, mm-hmm. and, you know, you can try to change it, you know, which I always did try to change it, or you can leave the situation and go on to, to, to something different. And so, um, I think, you know, one of my mistakes might have been staying somewhere too long right that that was probably a mistake uh another mistake might have been i took a or, or might not have been a mistake i don't know i i took um I, I took a long time to go back for my doctor which i'm not saying that's for everybody it's not for everybody for me it was the right thing to do and it came out of i was in a place and i was not happy at all and i was coming home my wife who was very supportive right constantly she just got tired of hearing me complaining and one day she looked at me and she goes, stop bitching, man. <laughs> and so I was like, Whoa, what do you mean? Stop bitching, you know, going through this. And, you know, I started whining and all this stuff. And then, you know, I went away pouting and all that, that, you know, type of thing. And I thought about it. I thought, she's right, man. I've just been sitting around bitching. I need to do something about it. And that set me on the path to, uh, for me, going back to school. And that opened up my mind again to writing. I forgot. I used to write when I was younger. And uh, I mean, that was in like 2010 where I decided to make that decision to go back to school and then get a specialist degree and then get my doctorate degree and finish my BCBA. I just kept going. You know what I mean? I'm like, I need to, I'm not where I want to be. I want to be in a position where I hold the cards and I just been exposed to so much bad leadership, man, so much coercive stuff. And even though it wasn't always directed at me, most of the time it wasn't, but even just having to keep your mouth shut, I didn't, did not jive with my values and I didn't keep my mouth shut a lot. You know, I felt like it's not okay that you're treating somebody like this way. It's not okay. But I had to get to that point. I kept listening to it and taking it, taking it. And the more I listened to it and took it, the more I didn't feel good about myself, man, you know? And the more I was like, I don't know that it just, 
it, that was not aligned my values but then you like justify in your mind like i don't want to have a headache with this person or mm. uh, you know i gotta keep my job and i have a family and these are real things that people have to go through i'm not saying people should go back and stand up to their boss because there are ramifications to it i wanted to get myself into a position where i could and if like you don't like it fuck off you know yeah. what i mean because i know at this point like what you're doing is hurting people and i if i'm not okay I, it's not okay with it and so you know um I, maybe coming back again to your question if i was you know a mistake might have been not saying something right away you know i don't never felt good about just listening and like not saying something's like tacit compliance or tacit approval or whatever it's called mm. you know like somehow i'm agreeing because i'm not disagreeing i did not like the way that felt so i don't know that i don't know if those are mistakes so that's just the nature of moving in the right direction i'm sure there's lots of mistakes that i've I've made uh, uh, along the way. I made mistakes, but I learned from my mistakes, like videoing. I made a ton of mistakes, but every time I made a mistake, I'm like, I need to do this. I need to do that. And I'd invest in it and I would research it. So my mistakes, I try to go back and say, what can I do better next time? And of course, it's got to be aligned with your values. Like if you're making a mistake and you're doing things that you don't care about, then you don't care to research and dig mm -hmm. in. You know, so a big mistake that people are making is not understanding what's important to them, not having a vision mm -hmm. for where they want to go. And I didn't. When I look back, I can think about, ah, my path was very clear. I can see where I want to go and what I want to do now. But at the time you're in, it, it's like, how do I know this? And what am I thinking about? Where's my mind go? What makes me happy? You know, what? what what gives me meaning and starting to look for the patterns of those things and mm -hmm. so many people have no idea what it is you know a lot of people have jobs and they have careers and you know i want to be in my passion i want to be in my passion as much as possible because i know when i'm there i'm in my niche and the thing that gives me meaning it's going to get the best out of me and i know that getting the best out of me is going to help as many people as I can, which I really enjoy, man. Mm. Which I, I think this is what differentiates good versus great leaders. Like we're all as leaders, we're always going to face, we're, we're always going to encounter failure. That's a given. And yet it's, you know, leaders who encounter failure and learn from it um, versus leaders who encounter failure, learn from it and help their teams, like be vulnerable enough to help their teams see that they've learned from it. And that that's okay. That's not just okay. That's a, that's a critically important part of leadership. I, I agree so much, man. You know, being vulnerable for your team, you know, just being open. I'm, uh, that's why I just am an authentic guy. If I make a mistake, I'll go back and be like, mess that one up, guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> Here's what I was thinking, you know. And uh, But I think that the more you involve your team in decision-making, the less likely mm -hmm. you'll have that issue because then you all that's are right. owning it, you know. Um, but I think that you do definitely need to be transparent with your people and they trust you more if that's the case if that's the case because everybody makes mistakes so um you know that's a strong point you made man i yeah. also think that the best leaders intentionally look for growth uh this is on the other end of what you're saying you know uh which i, I know you would agree with this um they're always looking for the smallest amount of growth so they can reinforce progress yeah. you know as a and, and they understanding that the measure of their leadership is found in the behavior of the followers. And, you know, if that means if their team's not doing well, they're not blaming the team. They're reflecting on their own leadership behavior. 
Mm-hmm. You have people like that, you know, that's, that's, unfortunately, it's all too rare. It's out there. It mm-hmm. certainly is out there. But in our field, it should not be rare. That's that behavioral myopia uh, that I was talking mm-hmm. about, you know. It's not about your intent. It's about your impact. You have to look at how well people are performing as a measure of your leadership or your management or your mm. supervision, all these pieces of it, not blaming. You engage in blaming, you've now taken off your behavioral lens. Totally, totally. That's, I mean, the classic Aubrey Daniels, right? The measure of a leader is behavior mm. of your That's followers. Right. That's right. I, you know, it's funny. So I, uh, my, my brother who went to Princeton, he, he got all the smarts in, in our family. Uh, but I'll <laughs> never forget the, the, um, the, the valediction speech was back in 2000. Um, was by Garrison Keillor, you know, formerly of Lake Wobegon days and at NPR. And, and there was one message that Garrison Keillor had for all of these like 21 year old Princeton graduates who were going out to do, you know, whatever, save, change the worlds and like amazing opportunities. He said, I have one recommendation for you. Go fail at something. You have been successful throughout your whole life and through your education. Go fail because that's where you will learn most. And that's so stuck with me, man. He, the man that that is absolutely right, and unfortunately, a lot of people that are high, gifted people who are higher achievers, they're they're used to being successful, and they don't take failure well all too often, you mm-hmm. know. And but when you understand everybody fails, and it's a learning, it, you know, science, we should be like this is a data point, and this yeah. tells us what not to do, right? All right, let's try something else. And everybody can be successful. Everybody can be better tomorrow than they were today. It's just, it's just a journey. That's right. What well, you've turned around failing schools, Polly. What does that take? <laughs> Man, I'll tell you. Well, first of all, it was, it, it was with a team of people. Okay. It takes a team to do it. So I don't want to say that it was, it was me. Um, it, it, and it was the science, you know, teamed armed with the science. Um, but it's, it, it ain't easy. I'm telling you, it's not easy at all because you're dealing with, you know, first school I did that, we had 600 kids and 100 adults, you know what I mean? So 700 people who um, you're looking to change behavior. And one of the things that the message that um, I put out and actually Anika and I were just speaking about to the school leaders that we were training recently is that um, almost always, not even most of the time, almost always in order to change the student's behavior, we have to change the adult's behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's leadership. And they would always look at me as I was the behavior guy. I'm like, yeah, I am the behavior guy. I'm changing the behavior of adults. And this is a, hard for people to understand. And, and making that connection for them is one of the first things that we do. And we do it through some storytelling and, uh, you know, keeping their uh, guard down, down with it and just helping them to have a clear vision about what's going on. And because they think a lot of behavior analysts are going to come in and sprinkle magic behavior dust on kids <laughs> and that the behavior is going to go away. Right. <laughs> this happens so often, you know? So, um, you know, when I first started turning schools around, Jonathan, uh, it was, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It was the first school I was at. It was the perfect storm. It was new kids who had, they stopped busing. So they put all these community kids back in. It was a high poverty school. Hmm. They had all first and second year teachers from like Iowa or something like that. Um, and it was a brand new administration, brand new assistant principal and brand new principal. And man, the top was blown off the school. Teachers wouldn't even come out of the rooms at the end of the day. They were crying. They were quitting. Kids had taken over the schools. I would come in in the morning. I was assigned to go there just to check in on one classroom as the consultant model for the district. And so at the, I was I was a crisis management instructor at the time as well. And uh, I would just come out there in the morning just to make sure like 
you know, nobody was dying. You know what I mean? Mm. I'm like, it was just a mess. Bus running around. Nobody, no, nobody's out in the hallway. And so the, uh, at the time it was the assistant superintendent, I think came to me and said, Hey, you know, do you think you can come out here and help turn the school around? And I'm thinking, no, <laughs> what am I going to do, man? <laughs> but I had been a, Jonathan, I was a, I was a slacker. I didn't, wasn't reading research and uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't, I went to my initial uh, coursework in ABA was through a private organization. It was before you needed to be at the university. And so I wasn't really surrounded by behavior analysts and the ones I was surrounded by, well, you know, there's, there were some good people uh, and there was also some people that made me feel a little bit bad about the science. You know, I'm like, man, they're awfully judgmental about all this stuff. So, but when he asked me, I thought, well, this is the greatest science in the world. So it must be happening everywhere. And if they can do it, I can do it. So it's almost like that challenge thing that you talk about the fighter thing came out of me. Like, All right. And so at the school, they had, um, they had something called school wide, uh, PBS, PBS. Have you ever heard of that school wide positive behavior supports at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, the school had been trained in it, but I'm like, kind of think you need something like school-wide PBS for the adults because mm. they're not doing any of this stuff and we got to get them to do it. And somebody said, well, there is something kind of like that. It's called organizational behavior management. And they handed me the book by Aubrey Daniels called bringing out the best of people. And I read it and I thought, all right, this is the stuff I know. So let me try some of this stuff. There was nothing unusual about it. Just the wording was a little bit different. You know, I'm like, okay. And so I thought, where the hell am I going to start? There's 40 classrooms out there. And so selfishly I said, well, Maybe at least I can get this arrival time done. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I'm doing something here. And this amazing thing happened, man. It was simple, right? Start with simplicity. Um, and I ended up writing a book about it called Quick Wins. It's kind of like behavioral momentum. I got the staff to engage in something that was easy for them to do, mm. that it produced a visible and valued outcome for them. And all it was is I need people at their post. I need them to greet and smile kids when they come in. If they run, have them stop and walk back. Don't just say stop running. Stop and mm. walk back, right? That's a punisher. And within a couple of days, we had – I actually posted the people's uh, pictures and their names on the wall, the adults' wall, so they knew where they were supposed to stand. And just by having that there, right, it was – it increased the likelihood that they were going to be at their post, right? It was a little bit of yeah. negative reinforcement, but it put me in a position to positively reinforce. And they saw kids were walking and they were coming into classrooms a little bit calmer and all this stuff. And so I said, well, let's do dismissal time. Let's do transitions. Let's do the cafeteria. And we did that. And that year, and I had to create a uh, alternative to suspension program, which I, I still have. It was mm-hmm. I called the quick room. It was all souped up with science. You know, it had timers. It has now has virtual timers that are on the wall that are projected in the computer signaling program, but we went from 792 suspensions the year before to 67 the next year. And, wow. uh, you know, huge teacher retention. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a big deal, wow. man, but it wasn't me. It was just simple application of the science and just repeated that stuff. So it took involving the staff, giving them the why showing them how it's good, telling them and explaining to them through good talk that, it's going to make your job easier. So I got to get behavior going through some EOs. Right. And then once they're at their place, I used to have to walk laps up and down, up and down, reinforcing behavior. Then I popped that out at the end of the day saying, look, man, I went out there and out of 20 people, you know, 17 were at their spot and, you know, two were absent. Um, and the rest of you guys covered that. And I know the one person I just had the prompt, it's okay. They're just getting in the habit of being out there. And mm. they were out there and it's, that was me as a positive reinforcer and a person of trust. So when I needed some more challenging things, they believed in me. And also 
I believed in myself because I didn't know I could do this stuff, you know? And yeah. then we just took it on the road. That's amazing. And that's a great example of like behavior chan change can be physically and mentally exhausting. <laughs> I can only imagine how many laps you were running Dude, trying well, to make sure people were in the right place. You, you have to. You got to reinforce them for being there. First thing yep. is I need them yep. there, you know, yep. and I need them doing the right thing while they're there. And I need to show them that by doing this stuff, it's producing this result. And they were seeing it visibly in front of them, the kids walking more. But also when I put the data in, I would reinforce everybody like, look, man, our, our calls for assistance. I was getting 45 codes i end up coding this stuff which meant like a removal from the classroom 45 mm. a day by the end of the year we were getting we had days where there was zero you know so it was like it was incredible wow. man it was a big difference wow well you know i i, I recently i think in the economist there was an article that came out a year or two ago it was really interesting it shared data around what was most effective in changing um uh, or improving kiddos performance at schools and it was nothing that you would expect it wasn't like reducing classroom sizes it wasn't investing in, like facilities like the biggest thing they found was providing more uh coaching and mentoring for the teachers themselves um and like hearing what you describe sounds exactly like that you were shaping you were changing behavior of adults even more so than, you know, change yeah. the behavior of, of students. Well, it doesn't surprise me at all, man. There's some, for anybody that's listening here, uh, there's some research out there by Joyce and Showers, 2002. If you just click on the images, you'll see that theory and discussion resulted in uh, zero transference of skills learned and training to the natural environment, to the classroom, zero percent. It's like me giving my fighters theory and expecting that they're going to be able to perform in the cage of the ring. Theory and now add on modeling to that. All right. So they might learn a little bit more of the knowledge they might be able to perform skills like maybe 20 percent knowledge 10 percent skills mm -hmm. where before it was like 10 and 5 um still zero percent transfer of skills right even if they got all that you know theory and modeling and rehearsal with feedback now you're talking about behavior skills training right good they were able to get 90 or 60 percent uh knowledge 60 percent skills but only like 10 percent or even five percent transfers of those skills into the natural mm -hmm. environment back into the classroom what did it up to 95 percent coaching and it doesn't have to be deep coaching right and i and i can explain it behaviorally that if you train a bunch of people antecedent strategy right but our, our field is based on consequences mm. they need to know that there's an expectation that they're going to engage in the behavior right because we got to develop habits here and there's good people go back even at the with the greatest training and they fall back in old habits mm -hmm. but if they know they're that you're going to come look at just a couple of behaviors and you give them a job aid or just something that reminds them the visual they can put up that they're going to do this thing it drastically increases the likelihood that they're going to engage in behavior if they know you're coming to check and you pop out those little metrics that I mentioned. Hey, we went through 10 classes today and we saw that seven of you were doing it. We know when we come tomorrow, we're going to get eight or even nine mm -hmm. doing it, you know. And so initially it's negative reinforcement probably, but you make it nice. You give them a raffle ticket for doing it. The goal being that they do something well enough, uh, long enough and well enough that they start producing positive reinforcement right naturally occurring positive reinforcement the kids are more engaged disruptions lower my job is getting easier you know my leadership's coming by and giving me more positive feedback that's what you're trying to get them to do long enough and then you can begin to fade out does that make sense yeah it totally makes sense man yeah well, I, on that note i think about generalizing back to aba practices what's one thing every aba practice owner should start doing Polly, and one thing they should stop doing well they should not coerce you know what I mean? Mm. Stop the coercion, man. Um, I, that's a huge thing. I mentioned earlier that there's so many things I go to with this, man. They need to check in with their people, right? They need to have a metric to know how people feel about things around there, okay? And it needs to be some 
anonymous way because you'll get bad data if people are afraid to put it in, right? It's going to punish honesty. Um, so you need that. Uh, but in general, I would switch. Um, so you, you want to also uh, identify accomplishments. Don't lead by results, right? People need to know that they did their job at the end of the day or the end of the week. So making progress salient for people is a huge thing. It puts you as a leader in a position to reinforce, right? Very important. Um, involve your stakeholders. Involve your people. Don't do things to them. Do them with them. And that should be trickling down. I, I think that everybody should be like kind of a coach. You know, coaching is about supporting the transference of learned skills into the natural environment. Training is about skill acquisition, right? Mm -hmm. So people need to know how to coach. I mean, coach using the five laws, you know, understanding pinpoints, understanding goal settings and breaking those goals down to measurable accomplishments, uh, understanding uh, self-monitoring report out, having a system that, understanding mm -hmm. reciprocal feedback, meaning that feedback's bi-directional. Here's how you're doing. By the way, how am I doing? You know, with helping you, supporting you and giving people a piece of the pie, you know, making sure they're getting in touch with some sort of positive reinforcement uh, for doing it. You know, they're, they're producing valued outcomes. Um, but I, I do think that whenever possible, tie in some sort of financial gain, you know, um, when people come in. Don't drop them just out into the field. Don't assume because they have a certification, they had a job that they're competent in what they're, they might not know what they don't know. Figure out the critical behaviors that are, the, the, the behaviors that are critical for the setting that you're supporting, right? Mm. And have a competency checklist for that. And say to them, like, you know what? Here's where you scored at. You know, when you score here, here's the pay you get. When you scare, score there, here's the pay you get. Provide the resources for them to do it. They're going to really go out there and try to do that stuff so they can get pay bumps right mm. and a lot of them are out in the field and they're not being successful because they don't have the knowledge and skills to perform well enough um, but when you provide them those resources and you provide them an a, a an environment that is supported with good coaching along the way using the five laws that i just mentioned mm. they're going to be much more likely to stay because retention is a big you know a big bonus right attrition costs money mm. i don't know i think i read something like an uh, rbt might be and I think they were guesstimating, right? 5,000-ish. I don't know. That seems probably on the low side, but maybe that's right. I know when I did my research a few years in education, they were quoting 8000 to $22,000 a teacher every mm. time they left. And people don't understand all that goes into it in terms of, you know, the marking, the selection process, you know, all the human resources that go along with it, with them coming and they're leaving. And not to mention when they leave, you've lost a bunch of organizational memory. You know, you've yep. invested in people and now you're starting over. And so how's that hurt? you know, their support of the clients and how's that hurt your bottom line? So I think that, you know, train people well enough, uh, you know, so they perform well, so they, uh, and then treat them well enough. So they want to stay right. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, some Richard, uh, Branzik, uh, misquoted information right there. <laughs> <laughs> so powerful. You know, we calculated this at a set. It costs over $10,000 for RBT, one mm -hmm. RBT. Yeah, so, so, so that's the kind of thing that I would say to you, that's why you need social validity, find out how people mm. are doing. And that's why you need competency stuff. And these yeah. are the kind of metrics that need to be in place. But I would say like, all right, who are your leaders that are involved in that? And like, they could be bonus that if you're like, you know what, we saved 10 RBTs this year, right? All right. So that means that's a hundred thousand dollars you saved. So mm -hmm. figure out why not distribute $50,000 of that back to the people that are involved in it. Right. And and, but break that down to monthly, you know what I mean? Like, Hey, we're st staying above this number yeah. here. 
So they're getting in touch with more reinforcement and they're learning what, and they know clearly what their behaviors they're engaging Mm -hmm. in that are producing those results. But the fact that you're even measuring it really gets people to check the way that they're writing the email like you're doing, right? How they're communicating to people, how they're involving people in goal setting. And it's, it's powerful stuff. I would recommend, man, that everybody learn the five laws Mm -hmm. and, you know, engage in deliberate coaching. That was one of the books I, I also wrote. Now I don't, I just so you know, I make like a dime on books, man. I don't try to sell books. I, I swear to God, I, I don't. I really don't. Uh, but it just it, it makes simple sense. As you can see, I keep everything simple. This stuff is simple. Right on. Well, hey, Polly, before we do the hot take questions, where can people find you online? Oh, man, LinkedIn. Uh, if they can connect me at Paul Gavoni there. Uh, Instagram, Dr. Polly Gloves. Um, uh, and um, Facebook poly gloves but you know also my main gig is that is that excuse me uh, the professor the professional crisis management association mm-hmm. and uh listen i i think if, if you're in the field in aba we are the only system that uses applied behavior analysis throughout right from the training bst building fluency competency like it's exhausting when you go through it right but when you walk away you know what you're doing you know how to do it right into the procedures which have very precise precise shaping and fading approaches Mm. right within three seconds if somebody is like engaging or or, or beginning to calm down we begin to fade out so it's very systematic and very predictable which has a huge impact on uh the client's behaviors Um, we'll drop a link to the pcma in the show notes yeah um all right you ready for the hot take questions yeah, I don't even know what that means, but go. Means we need some rapid fire, quick oh, okay. answers. All right, okay. here we go. You're on your deathbed, Polly. What's the one thing you want to be remembered for? Uh, fighting to help people. What's your most important self care practice? Um, going to the boxing gym, and that's debatable. <laughs> get, <laughs> getting hit in the head is probably not a good thing, but it makes me feel, you know, sparring and hitting the bag keeps me grounded. Right on. What's your favorite song? Oh man, um, I, I, there's so many. I'm, I'm a like late '60s, early '70s guy. There's so many depending on my mood. Mm. But the one that always comes right into my mind is like "Stairway to Heaven," you know, like classic, mm. like that. Yeah. Zap. Well, if you could give your 18 year old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh man, I'll tell you what. Um, here's one I didn't even mention. It's about leadership. Um, move from and this is an important behavior for any leader can adjust right now if you are if you are in a position of any type of leadership leadership is not about position i would tell myself that leadership is not about position you can lead from anywhere right it's about inspiring people influencing them towards a common goal so it doesn't matter about your position plenty of people in leadership positions who are not leaders i would let myself know that um and i would also let myself know that shift from telling people to asking them right um asking people is very powerful it's a very powerful coaching tool when you start Mm -hmm. using behavioral questions about you know what results you're trying to produce what are you doing what are you seeing as a result of stuff like that so it's very powerful uh and it really helps people to be better able to assess problem solve make decisions and take actions in a way that you might do it if you are the person who is the knowledge Mm -hmm. holder in the way that is able to perform better so i'd want to empower people more that way because younger you know i went into social work and i became a therapist and because people would come to me a lot with their problems and they like my advice and you know giving advice is risky and also doesn't engage the person you know you really want to walk them through using good questions on you know how to work themselves out of things and uh, it's empowering to them so 
that would be a powerful one. Spot on. Well, you can only wear one style of footwear. What would it be? Oh man, you know what? At this age, I want comfort, brother. I got I have some cool shoes. Well, it'd probably be sandals. Uh, I'm a sandals flip flop type of guy, man. But recently, I started wearing these shoes called Hey Dudes, and they're so Ooh. comfortable, man. They're all like light and breezy. You can slide your foot right in, and uh, so those have been fun. But if it was really one, it would be sandals, man. The sandals and shorts and uh, t shirts or tank tops all day for me. Love it. Sandals, board shorts, and just sun, wind in the hair. Man, this has been awesome, Polly. Thank you for taking time. Oh, it's been my pleasure, man. Thanks for uh, you know listening to me yak for an hour. <laughs> Keep sharing your wisdom with our field and with the world, brother. Thank you, brother. What up, listeners? Hey, I got something for you. If you like my Building Better Businesses and ABA podcast, you're going to love the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. So I recently met Matt at ABAI. And let me tell you, I was just an instant fanboy. Matt's the real deal. His pod is all about stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. So session 191 on his pod is on the behavior analysis of lying. That's right, lying. How awesome is that? Who does that? He also talks social skills, act, FAs, and so much more. His guests include Greg Hanley, Jonathan Tarbox, and other legendary names in our field. And as a BCBA, you can even get CEU credits through Behavioral Observations. You can find Matt and the Behavioral Observations podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel. Enjoy, friends. Thanks for listening to Building Better Businesses in ABA podcast. Stay tuned for our next exciting episode. In the meantime, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We value your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on social media at elementrcm.ai.